You're listening to The Conversation with me, Amanda Decadene. This is a special series about the men. I'll be talking to some men who interest me, who I'm curious about, who I want to learn more about over the next few months, and I'm excited to share these conversations with you. Today's guest is Zachary Levi. Zach, you may know from his role on Chuck, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, as well as Shazam. But what we're talking about is his brand new book, Radical Love, Learning to Accept Yourself and Others. If only we could all do that. We're also talking about his mental health journey. He shares some very vulnerable moments, one of which is talking about how close he came to suicide. If you listening or anyone you know is considering suicide, is thinking about suicide, I want you to know there is a new mental health hotline. You just dial 988 and there is help waiting for you on that phone line. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Zachary Levi. So your book, yes, Radical Love, Learning to Accept Yourself and Others, yeah. recently came out. I mean, what a great title that is. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it is. And thanks, if only we thanks. could all just do that. I mean, that's that's the whole point of the book, really. You know, I you know, it's it's interesting. Radical love, in some ways, I kind of feel like it's a little bit of a redundant title, only because I think love, like actual love, is radical. So it like I don't I don't know that there's sh there should ever be an unradical version of love because love itself really is kind of a radical thing because real love, not just the sentiment of love or feel the feeling of love or being in love which is really a feeling and it's a nice feeling. Um, but that's like, you know, that's like, uh, it's, it's like, it's, I like something so much that I say, I love it. But, um, you know, recently, actually, I heard this great quote. Um, and it was, uh, Thomas Aquinas who was really kind of carrying on this message that I think even started with Aristotle or something, but, uh, essentially it is, love to love is to will the good of the other and mm. that isn't just a feeling of liking something really deeply that is recognizing that you might not even like the person that you are loving but there's a big difference between those two and i think that this yeah. is where we are this is where we're stuck as people we we feel like in order to practice love with ourselves even we have to somehow be doing everything so perfectly and we have to like ourselves so much that that's how we finally love ourselves as opposed to recognizing that we and everyone else in this world, we are all products of our environments and we have to have grace with each other because of that. We can't just expect everyone to be doing everything perfectly. First of all, who's coming up with the rules of what's right and what's wrong? I mean, clearly there. Well, I want to ask you, how did you learn to accept yourself? Yeah. How did you learn to accept yourself and have you? Let's just get right to it, Zach. The truth is, you know, uh, it, it it's not uh, uh, how I learned to accept myself and others, but rather learning because I still am. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. ongoing. It is yes, a, it's journey. a journey. It's a journey. And as much as I'd like to believe that perhaps one day we all can get to a point where it's we're so good at it, we practice it so often and so naturally that that it becomes second nature uh, and i do think that there are 
thresholds that we can get to on that. I think that there are people who are in their, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s who have finally let go of so many of the things that have been blocking them polluting, from that. Yeah, cells. polluting their heart and their mind and the unforgivenesses and the angers. And, you know, because they realize like, what's the point of holding on to all this? It's very difficult when you're still in your younger years because you you feel like there still is a point yeah. to be angry with this person or that thing or whatever. Well, the truth is until um, you get to the point where you realize that you have to let go or continue to get dragged, who is letting go of this stuff? Yeah. You're, we're just yeah. not. You're not, you're not. And, and our egos are mostly to blame for that because our egos are on one hand, the most incredible survival mechanism we were ever given it's what protects us from all of the insane trauma that we incur throughout our childhood until it and into our adulthood. <laughs> but well, yeah, yeah. And but then, you know, like almost like a like a like a suit of armor almost, it takes all of the hits, right? But we don't realize that we're inside of that armor and those those hits are leaving dents yeah. and, and misshaping the armor in ways. So now we're in this exoskeleton, but it's all crooked and yeah. weird. And we're all just trying to, you know, I like hobble that around. Visual. Thinking, I'm I love that visual because it is, in fact, whenever whenever those moments occur and you said that you had, you know, you talked about having a breakdown, um, you know, which I always like to look at as a breakthrough. Um, sure, yeah. I've had my own too. Um, but when you have uh, those those moments you, where you crack open and you get to look at yourself, there are so many bruises and dents and, and there's the, the, the impact is still there, right? And you go, oh my gosh, this is the person that I am. This is, this is the cause and effect of the life I've been living. These are the things yeah. I continue. These are the ways I continue to damage myself how do I get out of this ironclad ego suit and yeah. really start to, I like to think of it as like thawing out, right? Yeah. How do I come back into my truest form? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that, you know, for the longest time, I, I guess I kind of subscribed to this idea that I'd heard often like, you know, death to the ego, death to the ego. And I, I think it's, it, you know, in some ways, I guess it, it might be a um, a bit of semantics, but I'm now more of the kind of thought process or the the mind frame of it's not so much death to the ego as much as recognizing what the ego is, how it's been helpful and how it is not helpful and being grateful for the ways in which it's helped you survive yes. and then very graciously allowing it to no longer be a part of serving you in that way because it's not really serving you in the same way. Our egos are really just so carnal baseline survival. And, and again, as a child, you know, like, you know, children who are sexually abused and they have disassociation, they are able to literally not be in a place and time that their own body is because they are, their ego is trying to protect their mind from whatever that crazy abuse is. Now it's incredible that the ego allows you to do that, but then later in life, now that's a problem. Now you are disassociating from yourself when you are in situations, even with somebody that you love and yeah. you want to be in and you don't know how to get through that. Well, I share a lot of my journey in, in my work because I also like you believe that, you know, removing stigma and shame from life experiences are, are, is really important for helping other people come to terms with what happened to them yeah. and knowing that, you know, hey, shit has happened that 
I didn't ask for that was passed on through generations. And, you know, if I want to make a change, um, it's up to me to, to, you know, talk about this stuff and to heal it. So I think you and I have a lot in common in that. And I was reading your book and wanted just to recognize it is a very vulnerable choice to make to share, you know, your personal mental health journey with so many people and to thank you for doing that because it is a vulnerable choice and not a lot of people want to do that. So thank you. I, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate those words of encouragement. And I, um, you know, it, it's interesting because a lot of people have asked me, you know, has it, has this been a scary process for you? I have not been afraid of sharing intimate details about my life or the things I've struggled with because one, I've always kind of been an open person. I don't know. I've always just felt like authenticity is where we all need to head. There's so much hype and marketing and nonsense and lies and deception in this world, particularly, I mean, at a high, high level right now. Oh man. And I, and I just want to crap, please. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, and I just really have always yearned for authenticity, being authentic and, and being, and me and being around other people who are authentic. I would prefer someone, even if they don't like me, I would rather they're honest with me oh, than putting on some totally. facade or whatever. And I think most of us do. So, so there's Actually, that. No, actually, no, some people would not prefer that. Some people would prefer that they don't have to deal with the uncomfortable reality that somebody yeah. doesn't like them. And True. so those people sign up for relationships with other people who are going to keep the facade going because it's too uncomfortable for anyone to deal with the reality. So the yeah. fact that you do embrace authenticity and do seek the truth is, um, I relate to that. I'm the same way, but it is not always easy to find your people. You're not wrong. Yeah, you're not wrong. There are, there are people that are still kind of struggling within that in that world. But the other thing is that every time I, I you know, I've, and I've really kind of looked back on it and I've tried to, you know, account for all of these moments in my life. But I, I think every time I've ever been deeply vulnerable, whether it's with one person or a lot of people or whatever it is, only good has ever come from it. I yeah. don't, I cannot think of a time when I have shared something that's personal and that's, and, and that's, you know, icky or, or, or shameful or, you know, shouldn't be shameful, but I still feel shame sure. about it because we're, we, we live in a culture that shames and blames all the time, which is what we got to get away from. But Big time. Um, every time I've, I feel like every time I've been vulnerable, it has only ever brought good to my life and to other people's lives. So that I actually wasn't uh, too, too afraid about. The only thing that I, had any kind of concern about was I write, you know, it's not like a full memoir, but I mean, it's a lot of memories of mine. It's, you know, it's my time in therapy and what, and all the things that kind of brought me there, the highlights of it anyway. It's lucky you've and, got memories. A lot of people don't have memories. Their childhood is so traumatic that they've blocked all uh, the memories out. Yeah. It's really hard yeah. to write a memoir when you can't remember a lot. That's I, yeah. I wrote a memoir. It was very hard to write because I couldn't remember so much from my childhood. <laughs> I yeah. blocked it yeah. all out until I had done enough trauma work that stuff came back. And then I was like, oh, okay, this stuff did happen. But yeah. you have a lot of memories. It was it was great. Well, I do. I, I do. But I, I, I like you, though, there's a lot that I don't remember. You know, I, there's enough that I could remember to put to put the book together. But there's a lot that I a lot of specific instances, you know, it's, it's a very general feeling that I have about my childhood with losing, missing a lot of specific moments, probably because they just were traumatic. And I've, you know, out of sight, out of mind and not had to deal with well, it. Well, you but did say you grew up in alcoholism. And I think that yeah. being an adult child of an alcoholic is a very unique. Well, it's not that unique because a lot of people grew up with alcoholism, but it is a certain profile, right? I yeah. also grew up in a home with alcoholism and um, you know, live, survive the effects of 
a, a parent who who drank a lot. Um, and I think that is an inherited behavioral pattern that as an adult, you're like, oh, where did I get this from? Oh, I it's because I grew up in a home with alcoholism. So yeah. I think it's pretty understandable for a lot of us that grew up in that way that we don't have clear memories about all aspects of our childhood. Yeah, certainly. But the 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 recollecting of all of that, the uh, involving other people. Be, I mean, my mom's passed away, so I wasn't too worried about how this book would make her feel. But I was and still am, you know, uh, sensitive to how it might make my stepdad or my father or yeah. my ex-wife or anyone else feel because, you know, it would be so antithetical to the book itself to be you causing them. Shaming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like that yeah. was the only thing. It's the only thing that I have any kind of, you know, hesitation or reservation about. But fortunately, at least up to this point, I haven't gotten any calls or emails or anything from anybody saying like, hey, what the fuck? Like, why would you yeah. do this? And, and I think that's partly just because I I really, really, really worked hard to make it as fair uh, and balanced and kind of a memoir recollections as possible and not just, you know, dragging people I that just, what's the point there, there's no, no point that does not seem no. like the point of your book and that does no. not seem what you're trying no. to do you know and ultimately yeah because we're all products of our environment right. all of our abusers all of your abusers all of my abusers Hopefully. everyone who has ever been an abuser by the way and we're all i would also add we're all abusers we we've all done this little things to other degree. people yeah yeah to some degree and but that's all because of the way that we were programmed that was yeah. that's all because of what how we learned and how we grew. And we have to be able to have grace and forgiveness with those people. It doesn't mean we have to keep allowing them to abuse us. Sure. That's one of the things that I think people get hung up on. Certainly a question I've gotten a lot, which is, well, how do I forgive this person and not allow them to keep hurting me? And I go, oh, boundaries. Well, yeah, it's boundaries. Yeah. And you got to recognize that forgiveness is not just permission. Forgiveness is not just a, yet an open door for them to keep behaving in the way that they behaved before. Forgiveness is really you coming to terms with something in your own life and surrendering and letting go of what has happened. It's like, you know, unforgiveness is drinking, po unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping that the other, other person, person will drop, die. Well, yeah. something really struck me that you said, which is that you've always felt compelled to love people and to help people since you were a kid. Yeah. Um, I yeah. heard you say that probably in the two hour long Insta live that you did that I did sit through the recording of it and I found it fascinating and Thank you. really interesting actually of all the things you've done that was super interesting to me and you said things that I thought were just really insightful but that thing in particular that you've always felt compelled to love people and help people since you were a kid what yeah. a beautiful feeling to have and I can imagine that that caused you a lot of pain with people not really understanding that yeah yeah I mean I think you know, that's definitely one of the things we're all trying to be understood, right? I mean, any anytime you feel like you're not being seen or heard or valued or understood, that is a very difficult thing to have to process, particularly as a child, um, but also very difficult as an adult. And, you know, I would say that um, my certainly there were there were parts of my urge to want to love people and entertain people and all of that that came from the my brokenness loved, yeah yeah and you know there, i mean i was a little boy between two sisters and uh, you know just floating in a sea of estrogen and had no real male role models and 
didn't know a lot of what to do or where to fit in, but I was so grateful that early on, you know, I, I, it dawned on me that I could make people laugh and, and intentionally. And if I could do that, I knew that they felt good. And that, that was like, oh my gosh, what an incredible magic trick. What a, what a, what a great and drug. setting you up as a, a, for a life of needing other people's validation to feel yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Ooh, exactly. Double side. Double, it's double totally, and, and also, and, and and the mixed bag with all that is that it also, my addiction to that and therefore my passion for it led me into this incredible Korea. career that I yeah. had, you know? So there's all these, there's so much to this, you know, the double-edged sword of it all. Um, and to be able to hold both, right? That's the, that's like the sophistication of recovery is to be able to hold both. That yeah. something was, um, you know, damaging in some way and also brought immense uh, benefits and joy to your life. Yeah. Be able to yeah. hold both of those things at the same time, which is really difficult and takes practice. Well, it, it does. It takes practice. It, well, it takes recognizing it first, right? Like, because yeah. a lot of us never understand. We all think, oh, this is a good thing in me. But it's like, ah, well, is it totally really? Because this thing in you that you think is so good was really birthed from all this other shit that you haven't dealt with yet. So maybe go deal with that. But then I, I, you know, I always come back to as a spiritual person, I, I really do believe that, you know, it's a, it's a great example of how God redeems mm. uh, things that happen in our lives. It's not always, um, you know, we, these things, these traumas, these abuses, these, you know, what could otherwise destroy us, can be used in Definitely. a beautiful way, even if it's just being able to talk about your own journey and how that can help other people walk through theirs. You know, that is a redeeming quality yeah. of going through what I've gone through. So, but I would also, I would also say that, you know, aside from wanting to entertain people and all that, which I still love to do, and I'm still so grateful that I'm literally living out little Zach's dreams to this day. Um, I've just always been, I don't know if it's being born a Libra or oh, other Libra. things. I was going like, to ask you uh, what star sign yeah. you are. When's yeah, your birthday? Yeah, yeah, yeah. September 29th. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But my mom, you know, it, who who was, you know, the, the main abuser in my life was also one of the most loving and influential when it came to me understanding who I was, because she was also a Libra. She understood she, and she had a huge heart for the world. She just couldn't get past all of her damage. Yeah. I and mean, let's just be clear see that, that in me. Yeah. Let's just be clear that, you know, people who are afflicted by the disease of alcoholism um, of, you know, which I'm one of them, I just happen to be in recovery, but th that it's no one's fault, you know, as you said, people, grow up the way they grow up they're given the tools or the lack of tools that they're given yeah. and then they try and raise us you know yeah. and then you know hopefully we wake up and get into some form of recovery or many of us end up dead um you know and i know that you came very close to that point and i'm wondering if that was the the first turning point for you or had you had those wake-up calls before well, I definitely had ideated about suicide uh, for many years, not not the whole time, but I think the first time I had actually thought about killing myself was um, probably around 12 or something like that. I was living in, uh, I grew up most of my life in Southern California, sunny Southern California. And then my stepdad got a job and moved us up to the Pacific Northwest. And I was living in the Seattle area and it is not sunny 
uh, up there. And I was this new kid who was bullied relentlessly at school. And my parents were fighting like cats and dogs, super dysfunctional and abusive to each other, to themselves, to us, all that jazz. And I think that was the first time I really started falling into clinical depression and not knowing what to do about it and didn't have parents I could really talk to about it. So I was just kind of internalizing a lot of that stuff. But eventually that kind of subsided. And then I thought I was okay. And then later on in life, um, you know, some really bad breakups with girls that I gave everything to because here I was again, trying to be loved, trying to find that validation in somebody else. Um, and then it would be too much for these girls and they'd be like, yeah, Yeah, I'm out of here. Oh my God. And, you know, so those, those heartbreaks would definitely kind of push me back up to there again and thinking like, oh my God, I'm worthless. Who will, who will ever love me? It'll never work. Um, and then, you know, some more of that through my twenties and work stuff that was super intense or, you know, just, and then eventually, you know, my marriage and divorce and, but even that, that was at, you know, 34, 35. And then my mom died right around that time. And it wasn't another, it was still another two years before I had my full, full, full breakdown because I would, you know, I'd get hit by this stuff, but I would always find a way, whether it was through self-medication or work, which often was a form of self-medication though I didn't realize it, but I was able to buoy myself and get through it. And it wasn't until five years ago at 37 when it all finally came crashing down. There was not enough self-medicating it stopped uh, of any kind yeah, all that of, I could all do. All of it your just... self-medicating stopped working. As it does, it's such a fucker that it stops working, but it does. And that's when the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Yeah. And and not only does it stop working, but when it stops working, it really exacerbates the problem, you know, because- Because the band-aids you, are ripped off. Well, the band-aids were ripped off, but also, you know, particularly if if- if depression and anxiety are something that you really struggle with, booze is one of the worst things you can put in your it body is. because you might get a temporary kind of like, you know, I'm cool. Like I'm not, I'm not stressing right now. Um, but the next morning you feel like garbage. You feel even worse than you did before. So, you know, and that again, that was that happens gradually as you get older, as your body's not processing it as much, as your mind is even more in chaos. So, you know, definitely it's something that depression, anxiety, struggled through my life with it, had moments of ideating about suicide at various points throughout my life. But at 37, when I had my breakdown or my breakthrough, as you put it, um, that was when it really all kind of came to a head and I, and I genuinely, I could not see any light. There was not a, there was not an inkling, not, not, the, not even the teeniest speck at the end of this dark tunnel. It was just darkness. And I didn't really see any point in continuing on. I'm just very grateful that I had friends and family around me um, who were clear headed enough to be able to say, Zach, you're, you're not thinking clearly. You are not seeing clearly. You are not seeing yourself or the world or how you fit into it clearly. You need real help, you know? And I had gone to some therapy prior to that when I was going through my divorce just to kind of process some of that stuff. And again, I felt like I'm good, you know? Like I've got, I'm I'm working through it. I'm good. I'm learning these things. But I didn't realize just how much more I had to unpack and and heal from. And I still am, you know, going back to your question about learning. You know, I am learning. I am, I am only... 
four and a half years old in my journey of self-love. You know, yeah. I'm this little toddler still trying to figure yeah. these things out. And therefore I have, when I start, you know, harshing on myself, I go, Oh, 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 there you go again, Zach. Rem you got to remember this. This is your brain playing tricks on you. And also be patient with yourself. You You're have just to be patient with yourself. Yeah. 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 I completely relate to that. So you talk about the fact that you went somewhere um, for three weeks and that I'm assuming you don't have to say the name of the place, but I'm assuming it was an intensive therapeutic recovery um, environment. I mean, I kind of want to know the place because I know a lot of those places and I'm so curious which one you went to, but, um, but there are some incredible places, but that was yeah. the beginning of your journey, right? I mean, of, of recovery of like true deep recovery yeah. and healing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I actually, uh, emailed the, um, uh, owner of this organization because I have to make sure that I, I have, I have to ask her first before I can, uh, publicly, publicly talk about, yeah. cause I don't know. I don't know. They might actually want me to talk about yeah, it, but I, they also might not. Up. I don't know. Cause I've had a couple of people asking me about it. Um, but they, yeah, it, you know, it's, it, it's really interesting because it's not a location or rather it's not a, it's not a facility as much as it's an organization that facilitates uh, in two areas, both in Southern California and in Connecticut. And I chose to go to Connecticut because I had family and friends in Southern California and distraction. And I, I wanted to like really just go somewhere else. And I was very grateful that I did because it was Connecticut in October and the trees were all Beautiful. colorful and wonderful. And I was like, wow, this is, you know, very memorable experience but essentially what they do is they work with the local psychiatrists and psychologists and other specialists in these two areas and then they cobble together a schedule a for, you for you there you go and stay in a regular house and then they provide all of the services that you need wow. including um as i talk about in the book uh they have these the house um, mother house mothers these companions exactly because everyone who's going to get help or treatment, you know, get uh, from these folks um, are clearly in places in their lives where waking up is enough of a task, yeah. let alone getting yourself fed, getting yourself, getting your laundry done, go, you know, getting in a car and driving to a new place and meeting like all of that. They recognize like everyone needed some healthy mother. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was so, and it, and, and it really, you know, I had, I had uh, for three weeks, I I had at least three, if not four, of these modalities every single day for three weeks, seven days a week. It was psychiatrist, psychotherapist, dialectic behavioral therapist, is amazing, art therapist, meditation therapist, life coach, nutritionist, uh, the gym four days a week, yoga twice a week, Pilates twice a week. So all of those specialists were kind of you know strewn throughout my three weeks, and that was all incredibly helpful and incredibly healing very very structured and but, teaching yeah. you how to really take care of yourself was the transition out of that tough because i would imagine going home having had all that structure and support you got to come back into something otherwise it could easily come apart it's not before it's fully it takes a long time to internalize all of that work yeah yeah so so uh, well as it turned out it wasn't that hard but it wasn't that hard because i literally booked shazam 
while I was finishing that treatment. Oh, wow. So all of a sudden I was thrown back into the scaffolding that was holding me up yeah. for so long. So I wasn't which just going been, straight back. Which could back. have been triggering, by the way. That could have been Very massively much. triggering. Very much. That was a, in the book, I talk about how I was very, like, I wasn't really sure what to do. It felt like it was Hollywood being like, come here. Yeah. Come how serious well, you know, are you about your Yeah, yeah, you know, so it was very strange. But <clears throat> I will say, and again, something I, I, I address in the book, but all of that, all those modalities, all those specialists that I worked with, wonderful people learned a lot from them, cerebrally learned a lot from them. But that time all would have been wasted on me had this woman, one of the house moms, one of these companions, Beth, really all of them, they were they were lovely women, all of them, and they rotated through, but Beth was kind of the main woman that I was not just working with, but also connected just completely to. connected to and, 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 and at the risk of losing her own job, prayed for me mm. daily uh, and with me. And she showed me love. She showed me a mother's love. She showed me, she was a conduit of God's mm. love. And that's what I needed more than anything. Yeah. Going and learning all of the, all of these various helpful tips and tricks and like self-talk and self-love and recognizing where you're suffering and recognizing how to stop those cycles of thoughts. And I mean, that's wonderful. That's all stuff that you need to know. But you'll never apply it to yourself if you don't think you're worthy of applying it to yourself. Yeah. And that was the biggest thing I was struggling yeah. with. I just felt still like, well, I'm a failure. Why would I Why would I apply this to myself? I don't deserve it. And it was because of this woman mm. and her literal self-sacrificial love that was able to at least just light like the pilot light of, yeah. of self-love yeah. so that that could grow larger and, and burn brighter and still a journey, still something I you know, I, I ebb and flow on, but it's considerably better now. It's something I struggle with, which is being the human being that I am with my purpose in life and what I care about and what I value. How do I live in an industry that just doesn't recognize that? Because that is a challenge. So how, how are you navigating that? Well, I would say, unfortunately, I don't think any industry really values or prioritizes mental health because I don't think that they value and prioritize life. Mm -hmm. I don't think that any, and none that I can think of anyway, well, even the ones that you would think are. I, I sometimes think maybe I'll end up being a therapist. Maybe that's what I'll do yeah. because at least I can be of service to people and I'm adding value to their lives and I can share yeah. my life experience. That's the one area or like a rescue farm. Yeah. I think that those yeah. are the two that I've come up with thus far. Certainly. Yeah. I, I guess, um, <laughs> Yes, if, if if one wants to call those industries, I guess mental health, there's an industry behind it, but well, it kind of- Well, there's the fucked up piece of it. There's the fucked up piece yeah. of the mental health industry where everyone's, where people are getting, you know, meds, they're getting misdiagnosed and meds that they yeah. don't need pushed on them and a bunch of things that they don't need. And then there's the incredible side that saves lives. So I think right, anytime right, there's a- yeah. Anytime there is an industry where a lot of people need something or are affected by something, there is the capitalist side of it. And then there's the part that actually has value. Yeah. But yeah, the most industries and Hollywood is, you know, just one of them. Uh, it's all bottom line. It's all, it's all about how much money can we squeeze out of these humans that are making whatever it is that that industry yes, is making. Absolutely. And, uh, at, and, you know, and, 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 at, you know, to the detriment of everyone's mental and physical well-being, really. Um, so, so that 
it's difficult. I mean, I, I, I wish I'm trying with everything in me, I'm trying to create better versions of that, whether it's just an individual production that I am a producer on and making sure that the people there feel loved and feel valued, or, you know, these these bigger, grander ideas I have of building an entire studio that um, is built on just far better ethos and philosophy and valuing. Again, you know, it's, Right now, industry values profit over people, and we need to just swap that around. We we need we need to care more about not and by the way, not even just the people that work in the industries and create whatever the product is, but all the all the people that are receiving the product, all the people that are downstream. I mean, how many products get made that ultimately are just trying to get people, you know, to just you know get, spend their money, but the product's not good. I mean, Hollywood's a perfect example of this. There's so much crap yeah. that gets. There's so much, so many crap reality, reality television shows that are just numbing people's minds and making us all dumber versions of ourselves. And Hollywood doesn't care. Well, the problem they just is, know. is that people keep watching it, you know, and my, my feeling is like, well, if you just fed people McDonald's, right. And you never gave them a home cooked meal, of course, they're going to keep eating the McDonald's. Let's exactly. not underestimate the intelligence of audiences and stop spoon feeding them crap which yeah. is the majority yeah. of what's out there. But I don't know about you, but I know that the last time I tried to get something made that wasn't the lowest common denominator, it is hard to find a buyer because everybody says there isn't a market for that. And I'm like, well, it's just that you haven't been giving it to people. Yeah. So I'm, with I, I on the studio. I'm with you on the yeah, studio I, uh, and making yeah. things and coming from a whole different ethos. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you. I talk to, I talk to people about that all the time. It's, you know, there, there are so many leaders, and I use that term loosely, in Hollywood who, you know, I can't, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard the words, yeah, but audiences are dumb. Exactly. Audiences are dumb. I'm like, I'm like, no, no, they're, they're not as dumb as you'd like to make them out to be. They're just very trusting, and they are assuming that, that you are all giving them the best you can give them, which is why they keep eating this garbage. But if you all cared more about the product you were making and you made it better, they'd eat that. Yes, they eat I it feel all exactly day long. The same way they eat it all day long, but they don't care because it's cheap and easy, and we'll just yeah, we'll just bleh, we'll just put out that, and we're making money, and who cares? That doesn't matter if it's affecting them. I mean, look at what's going on with agriculture. Look at the food that we eat the that has no food being fed anymore. Of the, of Look at all the pharmaceuticals that are being pushed on us all the time. Constantly. Like, oh, you need this and you need that. Oh, you need, oh, you're, you took this medication, you're having uh, this effect. We'll take this other medication that'll counter that effect. Oh, now it's giving you another, we'll take another medication. It's like, they don't give a crap yeah. about how it's all affecting us. We're just these consumers they just see us as a number and they want to sell us another thing and, and, and that's ultimately going to be our demise if we don't the issue is that like you said it comes back to if people don't value themselves and you don't love yourself and it is it, it is it is and i don't say this lightly it is the hardest thing to do it is yeah. not like there is a formula that you can just follow and then oh you love yourself no as you know it is the hardest thing to do it is ongoing it is two steps forward one step back it is an ongoing journey but yeah. most people don't have that value and care for themselves and so they are consuming crap food lots of medications they don't necessarily need content that is base is baseline like that is what it comes back down to. And so I don't know the fix on this. This is something I think about a lot of the time. I'm one individual. I can go out in the world and, you know, do what I do and try to help people to think differently and maybe give them some tools to try things differently and to try to, 
grow in a different direction. You're doing what you're doing in the world. There are many of us who are dedicated to trying to shine a light on you know, different modalities and way of living. But ultimately, I don't know what the fix is because it is an epidemic of people who feel terrible about themselves. And that's ultimately what we're talking about is, and you yeah. talk about this a lot where you say you either come from love or fear, right? Most of us are walking around in fear because we, yeah. to get to the place of love for ourselves and other people is a monumental gargantuan task that a lot of people don't have the first clue how to start to do it. They don't have the resources, the tools. They don't know, they don't know what to do. And every day I think about how can I make the world a little bit better for people in some small incremental way. Um, and that's why I actually wanted to interview you because for me, speaking to men who are open and honest about their journey and who are um, setting an example of an, another way to live. It's really important for me that I highlight those people and you from sharing your journey have become one of those people. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I you know, I, 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 <laughs> I, I, no, no, you know, no, no. I was, feel about stuff. That was well, no, it was very well said. And, and you're not wrong. I mean, it, it is a, it is a very difficult thing to do, but, but I would say though, that we can, we can get there we can we can really get to a world where we're genuinely loving each other which doesn't necessarily mean liking each other it just means again willing the good of the other recognizing that there is a miracle of life in every single person and some of those people we need to have really strong uh, boundaries with some of those boundaries even require people being incarcerated but even if they are we shouldn't be dehumanizing them we should still be seeing the human in them and hoping that that human can be redeemed in their thoughts and their feelings in their heart in their mind in their soul um but all of that starts with the first step which is actually truly loving yourself. And that starts with recognizing whether you are doing that or not. And a lot of people just don't, I didn't, I, it, 37 years of my life, I thought I loved myself. I had no idea that I didn't. So I think that's one of the first things. That's certainly one of the biggest things I'm trying to get people to recognize with the book is, hey, just take stock of your life. Are you talking to yourself well? Do you treat yourself well? Because if you're not, there's a good chance you don't actually love yourself. So work on that first. And then you will be quite surprised at how well you might be able to then love other people more deeply, more intricately, you know, more, more truly once you're doing that for yourself. And those steps of loving yourself are really it's not like they're easy because we all struggle with going to the gym and eating well and meditating and whatever. I mean, you know, that's time that you need to commit. It's time that you need to spend and a routine that you need to build. But when you do your ability to love yourself, you are because it's really just investing in you. Hey everyone, it's Scott Patterson from the I am all in podcast. Be sure to tune in to the I am all in podcast and check out my one-on-one -on -one interview with the one and only Jared Padalecki. We catch up on his experience as a series regular on Gilmore Girls, what it was like playing teenage heartthrob Dean Forrester, as well as his successful career following. And of course, we couldn't let him go without asking him the question that is on everyone's mind. Is he Team Dean, Team Jess, or Team Logan? Head on over to the I Am All In podcast to listen now.
we're running out of time. So I um, have a few questions that I ask everybody um, at the end that I just want to go through with you. Let's do it. Okay. Do you know the current status on Roe v. Wade? Uh, you mean the current status as far as uh, federally or statewide, the, the various states or? Well, not not statewide, but just overall what's happening with Roe v. Wade right now. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, Roe v. Wade, the legislation shifted. It was a federally protected right. And now the rights have gone back to the states. The states themselves will get to def define and decide what each state will protect and not protect. What is a feminist? Well, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty uh, open-ended definition, I think, because many women would define it in different ways, and many men would define it in different ways. But I personally define it uh, define it as someone who is pro-female, who is pro-woman, who understands that there is an infinite amount of value in every single female, in the same way that there is an infinite amount of value in every male. And I think that. That's all. And I do believe in an equal but different. I believe that we are all equally valuable, but we all very much, every man has different things. Every woman has different things. And men and women as sexes, I think, also have very different things to bring and add to this world. I, I think it's a little detrimental when we try to somehow make it all this level line of like, no, we're all exactly the same and we all have the exact same attributes. It's like, but we don't. I mean, we really don't. And it also makes for a kind of boring world. But anyway, that's why my definition of a feminist. What does boys will be boys mean? Hmm. Well, what what I what I think it meant or or hope it means, if anybody's actually using that term, which to be honest, I don't really hear that all too often anymore. But um, you know, I I would hope that it's only applying to things that gener genuinely are um uh, things, uh, uh, actions or, or, or demeanors or whatever that are, um, uh, indicative of a male energy, uh, indicative, hopefully of, uh, even a, a very healthy male energy, but at the very, at, at the very worst, at least, you know, a, a neutral benign, whatever that is, you know, guys or, or girls using boys will be boys to excuse any kind of behavior, uh, that is detrimental to other people is not the proper or good uh, or correct usage of that term. How do you spell patriarchy? <laughs> well, I could literally spell it, but um, uh, I don't know. You know, patriarchy is a really weird term in that, you know, um, as a man, I do not feel that the vast majority of men are a part of it or represent it or benefit from it. Um, I know that that might sound a little biased or easy to say because I'm a man and I'm, and I'm white and I'm straight and what, you know, name your, your intersectionalities. I don't know, but um, I think that, you know, there are a very, very few amount of people, uh, not all of the men, but most of the men, uh, who rule this world and every country and therefore the world. And if we want to deem those specific people, that ruling elite class, um, the patriarchy, okay. I think there's probably better terms for it because again, it doesn't just involve men. Historically, we could say that that was probably more of a thing. Now, you know, we have the Merkels of the world and the Pelosi's of the world and, you know, um, 
and the Kamala's of the world, whatever. But, um, but I think that I do, I, I find patriarchy to be a, uh, and again, coming from a guy, but I find it to be um, not a helpful term uh, because I think it, it, unfortunately people are trying to, to define again, something that's actually quite more specific. And what happens is every man gets lumped into this category of the patriarchy as if we're all making these decisions as if we're all pushing our weight around and telling women and other people what to do and that's just not the case i it's it's just not describe where the clitoris is <laughs> well that's the little man in the boat that's the little that's the little bean that's under that nice little hood y'all got right there at the top of the labia right there at the top Beautiful. What is a mansplainer? I mean, a mansplainer is, uh, you know, a man who is over explaining things to women or other men or children or whatever. I, I've met plenty of mansplainers. I've met plenty of women'splainers, uh, you know, but, but that would be mansplaining. That's all I got for you. I want to Excellent thank question. you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for showing up and bringing all of your beautiful, authentic self. I really do appreciate your time and your insight and your thoughtful answers. Thank you. Bless you. Really appreciate you uh, and really appreciate the time you gave me today. So nice to meet you. You're very welcome. I'll awesome. be watching you from afar and watching your live streams. That Well, don't, don't, don't be too far. You, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll, hopefully I'll, we'll bump into each other at some point. I hope so. I would yeah. like that. All right. Sending you so much love. You too. Have a great day. Bye, Zach. Bye. Bye.